thank you for your donation to Corbono, a nonprofit organization dedicated to the study of Scripture according to the mind of the Catholic Church. If you like this talk, we invite you to share our website, www.corbono.com, with others so that together we may participate in the evangelization of the third millennium. Our speaker, Najim Awad, lives in San Diego, California with his wife and seven children and has been studying and teaching scripture since 1995. Najib believes the Catholic Church holds and teaches the fullness of truth, and with his tremendous zeal and insight, he is able to communicate that raw truth without sugarcoating the teachings of the Catholic Church. He also believes that our job is not to change the truth, but to communicate it clearly and directly to others. And now, here's Najib. Welcome now to the continuation of our study of the book of Revelation. Hopefully tonight we're going to conclude the sixth trumpet. And we're going to be studying chapter 11, verse 1 through 13. Let's uh, remind ourselves where we are exactly. Uh, if you recall, we've seen trumpet four, uh, four and five. Four was about the locust that came out from the pit. Five was about the horses. And then when six was sounded. When six sounded, we studied that last week, we got to the point where um, this mighty angel came down from heaven and he was holding in his hand a little scroll. And we talked about the meaning of this mighty angel in his presence and the fact that he has the scroll over to St. John and that St. John has to eat the scroll, which tasted sweet in his mouth but bitter in his stomach because he has to prophesy against many peoples, nations, kings, and tongues. And right now, it sounds as if in chapter 11, there is an abrupt change of scenery. But it, it sounds as if this is what's happening, but really it isn't. Let's read chapter 11, verse 1 through 13 first. And then let's go through it. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff. And I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample over the holy, city for, the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant my two witnesses power to prophesy for 1,260 days, clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands, which stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, thus he is doomed to be killed. Verse 6. They have power to shut the sky, that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying, and they have power over the waters to turn them into blood, and to smite the earth with every plague as often as they desire. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that ascends from the bottomless pit will make war upon them, and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which is allegorically called, called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three days and a half, men from the peoples and tribes and tongues and nations gazed at their dead bodies and refused to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents, because these two prophets 
had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood up on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up hither. And in the sight of their foes, they went up to heaven in a cloud. And at that hour, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to God of, to the God of heaven. And verse 14 is the verse that acts as a connection between, as a bridge between the sixth woe and the seventh. The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. The third woe being the third of the last three of the seven. So it's actually the seventh trumpet. Again, this is a passage that sounds uh, very um, unsettling, disturbing, because of our tendency to impart physical, material meaning to all the images we see here. We have to ask ourselves a couple of questions. In this whole scheme of things, we see the measuring of the temple from verse 11, 1 through 11, 2. Then we have the two witnesses from 3 to 12, then the great earthquake in verse 13. What are those things, and why are they here, and more importantly, how do they, how do they relate to what was before? How do they relate to what was before? What happened then? Remember, the, the locusts and the horses came through. They made those who dwell on earth suffer for a period of six months. Then the horses came through with their riders, and they killed a third of them. So there is a preliminary punishment preparing for this. Right after those events, the angel comes down, this mighty angel comes, comes down from heaven and swears by the one who lives forever and ever that there shall be no more delay and that by the time the angel that holds the seventh trumpet sounds his trumpet, the mystery of God will be revealed. So we're preparing for the revelation of the mystery which we studied last week and which is the church. Not just the church, but how the church is going to be able to teach not only us the truth, but angels, even angels. Meaning, therefore, that in the kingdom of heaven, we are now equal citizens. Whereas before, men were second degree, second class citizens, because to them, the gates of heaven were closed. Whereas to the angels, they were open. But once the mystery of God is revealed, angel and men are on equal footing. And we are going to see that in a very specific way later in the book, because twice an angel will tell St. John not to worship him. Twice. And this is novel in Scripture. So, with that in mind, let's think about what is going on here. A rod is given St. John, and he's asked to measure what? The temple of God. Specifically, he's asked to measure the inner sanctuary. He's told to leave the court outside the temple, outside the sanctuary. In particular, what is outside the, the, the sanctuary proper? 
The court of the Gentiles, yes. The altar of sacrifice. That is very important. If you recall from our series on the temple, we went in great detail on how the temple is laid out. The altar of sacrifice, the altar of animal sacrifice, is outside the sanctuary. So that is effectively signaling the end, the end of the sacrificial system of the Old Testament. Therefore, it is also signaling the end of the Aaronic priesthood, the priesthood that goes back to Aaron, the priesthood established under the Mosaic law, the Mosaic covenant. Why? Because of what the angel said, right? The mystery must be revealed. But how can the church be revealed while the temple is standing? How could the church be established while the temple is standing? You might wonder, well, what's the problem? Why can't you just have the temple and the church? So the Jews can go to the temple and the Christians can go to the church. What's wrong with that? Mumble, mumble. Raise your voices. I can't hear you. So say it again, but louder. The new covenant and the old covenant. From God's perspective, there's no divorce, right? There's no divorce. You're not going to have two versions of the truth coexisting. Now, can you? One that says, and we're going to see a little bit later, that those animal sacrifices do not atone for sins, and one that says this one and only sacrifice atones for sin. How could God present both? The only reason why He presented the old was because the new wasn't around. But once the new is made a reality, the old goes away. Unfortunately, because of sin, it just doesn't happen the easy way. Humanity doesn't tend to do spiritual things the easy way. We have a knack to pick the hard way. So here, God is telling St. John, go and measure. We're going to understand a little bit more. We're going to understand why he's telling him to measure in a minute. Measure the inner sanctuary, leave the rest out. And then abruptly, the image shifts and we have these two witnesses that seem to be showing up from nowhere. It's like God pulled a rabbit out of a hat. There's no warning about any witnesses showing up and suddenly, wham, they're right there and we have a whole long discourse on what they're going to do and what happens to them and the beast and all that. And right after all of this happens, there's an earthquake and then and then uh, and then people are terrified, and we've basically, by that time, we're completely lost. What is going on here is that the testimony, the testimony of the two witnesses, is inscribed in the bringing about, in the realization of the mystery. They are part and parcel of the realization of the mystery. Don't lose sight of that. Don't lose sight of that. Because right after chapter 11, in the beginning of chapter 12, what does St. John see? Right. 
He, he basically went down to earth, and now he's going to go back up to heaven, and there is the portent. Right? And behold, a portent in heaven, a woman clothed in the sun. Actually, right before that, he's going to talk about the Ark of the Covenant that is seen in heaven. That's very important for us because the Ark of the Covenant was lost. Was lost. No one knows where the Ark is. And St. John suddenly sees the Ark up in heaven. And then he moves on to talk about the woman. But the the key point is that the heavenly sanctuary is now open. All right? So all of that, all this, these events are lined up to the unveiling of the heavenly sanctuary, which was, up to this point, closed. Now it is being unveiled. Closed, that is, no one had seen, no one had claimed, no one had said that the Ark of the Covenant was up there. One more point. Recall from last week that the angel, I alluded to that a little bit earlier, gave St. John the scroll to eat so that he may do what? He may prophesy. And then what do we see? We see two witnesses prophesying. Now, that's a pattern we've seen before. We've seen the four horses, right, and the seals, that turn into the four winds and the trumpets. There's shifting imagery indicating the same reality. So, the clue for us here is that there is a very profound connection between St. John receiving the scroll, the power of prophecy, and those two witnesses that are prophesying. And you will see that there is no way to really connect those two without, without the church. You can't connect them. But when you look at the church and the structure of the church and how the church functions, then the connection is clear. With that in mind, let's look at one last point about the overall structure of the text. Especially the witnesses. What happened to them? They enter the city, they witness for three and a half years, then they are killed, and they remain dead for three and a half days, then they're raised, and then they go up to heaven. Does that remind you of something? It's the way of the cross now, isn't it? All right. You see why we say the Christian way is the way of the cross? There's no other way. That's the pattern. It's given us right here. It is the way of the cross. What happens to Christ happens to His church. What happens to Christ happens to His church. As a matter of fact, if you were to take the Gospel of St. Luke and study it, and and by the way, we, we're going to be working on uploading the, the whole series we've done on Luke, about 57 CDs. We go through all of the Gospels. If you were to study the Gospel of St. Luke and then move on to the Acts, because you know St. Luke wrote both the, his Gospel and the Acts of the Apostle, you will basically see that the whole principal idea of St. Luke when he writes Acts is to show you that what happens to Christ happens to his church. 
That's the driving force behind Acts. But that's the overall structure here for those two witnesses. There's a close connection between what happens to the Lord and what happens to them. Let's then look first at the measuring rod. St. John is given a measuring rod. We have two backgrounds here. One is Ezekiel chapters 40 through 48, where Ezekiel is given a rod to measure the new temple. And Zechariah chapter 1, 16 through 17, and 2, 1 through 5. 1, 16 through 17, and 2, 1 through 5. In the case of the book of Zechariah, an angel measures Jerusalem to signify that it will surely be reestablished so that God's house will be built in it. To measure, to measure is a sign of protection. Effectively, measuring is related to sealing. So the sealing of the 144,000 is related to the measuring of the temple. What God is saying is measure the inner temple, protect it, because this will stay. The rest will not. It makes sense because the angel just said, we're now about to, when the seventh trumpet sounds, the mystery shall be revealed. So now that is a preparation for it. The first step is to focus on the essential part of the temple, which is the sanctuary. The rest of it was there to support the animal sacrifice, which was never intended to be a permanent thing. So the measuring of it is to protect it. Now, the removal of the court of the priests and the court of the men and court of the women and court of the Gentiles, all the courts surrounding the sanctuary, has both a negative and a positive connotation. The negative one is, of course, the destruction, the death that is going to follow from the destruction of all of this. But the positive one is, if you removed all those courts, what does it mean to the Gentiles? They have access to the sanctuary. Okay? They have access to the sanctuary. So you have to look at it both ways. You removed all those obstacles that were set so that a Gentile and then a woman and then a man could not approach a sanctuary, only a priest. And the high priest in particular could enter the Holy of Holy. Right? There's all these obstacles put in a way of man being able to go to God. And now they are being removed. Now, of course, what is at issue here for us is that when these events are taking place... The church has existed for 30 years. So why, why are we saying then that now is that transition taking place, that we're moving from the old to the new, when the church has already existed for 30 years? Because as we have said earlier in, this, uh, in our study of the book of Revelation, is that there is one, one thing to be said about a reality in heaven, and then its full implementation on earth. And we see, the, we see that in Scripture multiple places. So, for instance, in Deuteronomy, God tells the Israelites, I've given you the promised land. As a matter of fact, He told Abraham some 400 years before. Right? 
So he's giving it to them. So why don't why do they take it? Why does it take them about 400 years to get out of Egypt and then another good four four five hundred years of fighting to be able to actually control the whole promised land. Because there's this, something to be said about a reality that is established in heaven and then it's full realization on earth where we have to make it, where we, we have to make, turn it into reality, into a physical reality. Alright? That's the pedagogy that God uses to raise His children up. He says, yeah, I'll give you a car. You have to learn to, how to drive. Okay. And you're just four years old, right? Four year old, right? You're four years old right now, and so it's going to take a little bit of time before you can get to that point, but I'll give you a car. Right? That's why you see this, um, the fact that the church is already established, yet it is not fully implemented yet. It's established from God's perspective, but it has to unfold in time. And that is very important for us because we say to our, uh, to our uh, Protestant brothers and sisters that the truth does not change, but the truth unfolds in time. And we understand it better, and we deepen our understanding of it. So all the truths that Christ gave us, that revealed to us when He came down from heaven, were contained in Scripture from day one. That's the teaching of the church but they yet have to unfold in time, like everything else. I'm, I alluded earlier, I mentioned to you that the measuring of the inner court is related to the forthcoming vision of the Ark, of the Covenant, and therefore of the Eucharist. The reason why we're keeping the inner, the inner temple is because it's really the pattern. It is patterned according to the church in heaven, and now it's going to become a reality. It's going to come down from heaven. And Moses, Moses were, was given the pattern. And he built the temple according to the pattern. But now the church comes down from heaven. There's a big difference between the two. And why does the church come down from heaven? It is because of the Eucharist. In the Eucharist, we have the Lord. The Lord is sacramentally present in the Eucharist. And where the Lord is, there is heaven. What is heaven? To be with God. Right? Where He's present in the altar. Therefore, that's heaven. Therefore, we have heaven on earth. Which we could never have in the old economy. Make sense? A good text that illuminates our conversation here is found in the letter to the Hebrews, chapter 10, Verse 1 through 17 and 26 to 31. 1 through 17, 26 to 31. I'm going to read, the, read these and then talk a little bit about them. So in this letter, St. Paul is, talk, is, is writing to Hebrews and he's writing about the law and how the law is insufficient to make, to bring about the realization of grace, salvation of our souls. Verse 1. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices which are continually offered year after year, make perfect 
those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? If the worshippers had once been cleansed, they would no longer have any consciousness of sin. And by the way, the sin he's talking about here is original sin. Okay? It's the common sin to all of us. The, the one that blocks us from ever receiving grace. He's not talking about personal sin. So we don't interpret that to mean, well, you just um, you offer sacrifice once in a sense of you don't need to come back and celebrate that sacrifice over and over again. Right? This is about original sin um, in the main. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sin year after year. He's basically saying, this is, a, this is something that doesn't work. You do these animal sacrifices continuously, and they never remit sin. They cannot take away original sin. So, built into the sacrificial system is a declaration of failure. It's a declaration of failure. That's the best you've got. But it doesn't get you to heaven. It doesn't remove original sin from your soul. So in your sacrificial system, you're basically saying we cannot be saved by means of these animal sacrifices. For it is impossible that the blood of bulls and, bulls and goats should take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings thou hast not desired, but a body hast thou prepared for me. What does he say, a body has thou prepared for me? Because what is the purpose of that body? You prepare a body for what? Sacrifice. Sacrifice. Right? A body you have prepared for me. So, what is our bodies for? When you apply this reading in the moral sense, when you apply it to us, what is the purpose of our bodies? Sacrifice. That's why we have a body, right? At the end of the day, is to offer it as a burnt offering, as a holocaust, on the, on the altar. That's the purpose of our bodies. Because they're going to die. They're going to go to waste. There's nothing we can do about it. One day we're going to die, and the body is going to be put in the, in, the, in the belly of the earth, and worms going to eat the flesh. So you might as well not waste it, offered up as a sacrifice. Okay? Then I said, Lo, I have come to do thy will, O God, as it is written of me in the roll of the book. When he said above, Thou hast neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and bird offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law. Then he added, I have come to do thy will. He abolishes the first in order to establish the second. What is he abolishing? What is he establishing? He's abolishing the old sacrificial system and what is he establishing? I have come to do thy will. That's the key. What is the purpose of the new covenant? It allows us to do God's will. And that's embedded in what? The Our Father. Thy will be done. Right? The new covenant allows us to do God's will. Whereas before we could not and by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So the, the sanctification, right, sanctification, key on this, you're sanctified means you made holy, right? You're made holy. What does that mean? How, how could you be made holy? What, what must happen for us to be made holy? 
original sin must be removed. Right? Made holy, korban. Same word for offering. So we made holy, we're set apart to be offered. And the sacrifice of Jesus Christ once and for all does not mean that that sacrifice happened back then in time and hence has no connection to our lives today. It means once and for all. It is enough that it happened once so that all may be sanctified across time and space. There is no need for another one. So what Mass does, Mass is the unbloody sacrifice. It is a true sacrifice, but it is an unbloody sacrifice. Essentially, Mass makes that one, one sacrifice of Christ available to us so that we can benefit from the graces that Christ wished wish to bestow upon us. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, then to wait until his enemies should be made a stool for his feet, which is quoting um, Psalm, Psalm 1. So notice again the, the covenantal um, tint to this. After he's offered sacrifice, he sat at the right hand of the majesty. It's an expression to say he sat in power. He doesn't literally sit at the right hand. God is a spirit. There's no right hand and left hand. Right? It's an expression to say he sits in power, waiting, what? Until his enemies should be made a stool for his feet. Meaning what? All his enemies are subdued. And how, how are all his enemies are subdued? We go back to the great commission. Go forth and make disciples of all nations. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us for after saying, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their misdeeds no more. So, what is the purpose of the Holy Spirit now that it have been sanctified? It is to put the law of God, the law which was given on Mount Sinai, the Ten Commandments, to write it on our hearts. Because now our hearts are hearts of flesh, and He can write on it the law of God, which was given but could not be lived. Now it can be lived. And so what is the purpose of the Holy Spirit? It is to guide us in the truth. In the truth. And that is why I repeated to you many times that really our way of salvation will go through our reason because we are going to be convicted of the truth of faith. And that bolsters us to be able to believe longer and then ha- grow in our faith and go beyond reason. Right? The purpose of reason is to act as a footstool for our faith. But we need it. All right. Now, verse 26 he says he's not talking to the people of the faith. For if we, sin, if we sin deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth. So after receiving the knowledge, of, once we know the truth, if we deliberately sin, what is that? If you deliberately sin, knowing the truth. Right? Well, it can be mortal depending on what you're doing. But moral sins is included in that, right? It has to depend on the gravity of the, of the sin, of the action. There is no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. What he's basically saying is something very simple. You've been saved. Right? You've been saved. You've, original sin has been removed from your soul. Now you've been saved. And you've begun with the truth of the faith. If you deliberately act against it, what is going to save you? 
There's not a sacrifice to save you. Christ has been sacrificed once for all. Okay? But a fearful prospect of judgment, a fearful prospect of judgment, and a fury of fire which will consume the adversaries. Now, this is where we still see the connection with our text, because those witnesses have fire that comes out of their mouth and consumes their adversaries. Same wording. Hmm? So if we refuse the, the truth and we decide to act deliberately against it, then what is awaiting us? St. Paul is, say, is saying, a fearful prospect of judgment and a fury of fire which will consume the adversaries. Here we're, ta- we're not talking about people who committed a sin and then right away realized, oh man, I, sorry Lord, I really messed up. I'm sorry. We're talking about people who deliberately know the truth and decide to go against it and stick with that decision. You understand? Let's be very clear here. We're not, I'm not saying, you know, you can't, if you commit a sin, you can never be, uh, you can never regain the grace of God. No, that's what I'm saying. I'm saying if you decide to move away from that truth given to you, what, is to expect, what do you expect? Well, you're expecting the curses of the covenant. That's what St. Paul is saying, in other words. And then he adds, a man who has violated the law of Moses dies without mercy at the testimony of two or three witnesses. How many witnesses do we have here? Two. Key in on that. That's going to give us the interpretive key to understand who those two witnesses are. Okay? Why do you need two or three? Because it was a legal requirement for a just trial to have at least two witnesses. Remember in the case of Jesus, they tried to bring against him two witnesses, but they could not find two witnesses whose testimony would not conflict. You have to have at least two whose testimony will not conflict for a legal judgment to hold. Okay? She says, A man who has violated the law of Moses dies without mercy at the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the man who has spurned the Son of God and profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and outraged the Spirit of grace? Notice, St. Paul doesn't say, a man who has violated the law of Moses dies without mercy at the testimony of two or three witnesses. But now that Jesus came along and Jesus is full of mercy, this man will be saved. Now what he's saying. How much worse? Okay? So, oftentimes we have it backward. All the Old Testament was all about fire and brimstone and an angry God who's always upset. And the New Testament is about loving Jesus who just goes around and tells us how much he loves us and we're cool, we're all going to go to heaven. That's not what St. Paul is saying. And that's St. Paul. I mean, it was somebody who loved Christ. St. Paul. How much worse? And he adds, How much worse punishment do you think would be deserved by the man who has spurred the Son of God, profaned the blood of the covenant, by which he was sanctified, and out of the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, he's talking about God, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. That was, that's that's, that's a, a quotation about the Lord saying, You don't take revenge. Somebody does something against you, you don't think about how you're going to get even. Because justice is not yours, it is mine. 
But vengeance is mine. I will repay. Okay, that's why we pray for forgiveness, you see. Lord, do not hold this against them. We're not praying for forgiveness because, um, you know, we just want to be pious. Although being pious is a very good thing. Piety, the love of religion, is a wonderful virtue. But we're praying for forgiveness because how much worse punishment do you think? We know what, is, what, it, what, it, what awaits these people and out of mercy for them, out of charity, out of love, we say, Lord, we know what you can do. Don't hold it against them. And then he adds, and you can almost feel St. Paul's own reminiscence about what he has done when he stood as a witness watching St. Stephen die. You can almost, in those words, hear the echo of St. Paul thinking mostly about himself. And then he adds in this verse, he says, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of of the living God. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. This covenantal liturgical background is what's going on with the two witnesses. That's what we're dealing with. Okay. So, in Ezekiel, the measuring of the inner and outer court of the new temple essentially secured the temple against the abominations that were committed in Israel, and there were two of them. The first one were essentially laity who, was, who were committing idolatry, and the second, worse, the priests who inside, in a secret chamber underneath the temple, were also adoring false gods. So the, per- the, pur- the purpose of the sealing and the purpose of the measuring, the protection, is the same. Protect the believers from deception. Keep them in the truth so that they can reach heaven. It isn't about protecting them from physical adversity. It isn't about protecting them from what might come at the physical level. That's not at all the case. It is about final destination. It is about bringing them safely home. Because once we lose the truth, we lose our way. If What a tragedy for somebody to live his life believing something and you know that this something will prevent them from entering heaven. Let me explain that a little bit more. I know quite a few people who are convinced that uh, animals will make it to heaven. So you got uh, you know, a cat named Bob. Bob died. Well, you're hoping to one day go up to heaven and meet Bob. That Bob, right? The same Bob you had. There are even some who tell me that... Um, the, 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 the suffering of animals is redemptive. And they are convinced of that truth. How tragic. For a very simple reason. It isn't because the church is judging them or, or the church being severe. It has nothing to do with it. It's a very practical thing. If you are convinced, you're absolutely convinced of that truth, that the suffering of animals is redemptive, and you die, and you get to the pearly gate, by the way, the pearly gate, you know where the pearly gate comes from? Book of Revelation. Okay, We're going to see that at the end. You'll see why it's the pearly gate. <laughs> you get to the pearly gate, and St. Peter opens the door, and you get in, and, well, there's no Bob. 
But you lived all your life in the expectation. Or you lived your life expecting to see Bob. There's no Bob. Is that going to be heaven for you? Do you understand? So, in order for heaven to be heaven for us, we have to be aligned with the truth. What does that mean? Does it mean we have to know the truth fully? No, of course not. No one can know the truth, all of the truth, absolute truth, complete truth, but truth itself. And truth is not a thing. Truth is Jesus Christ. Right? Truth is a person. I am the truth, the way and the life. But we have to be aligned in such a way that nothing in heaven will go against our belief. Right? So that everything that we didn't know will delight us. Oh, wow. I didn't know that worked this way. How delightful. And how... And, and you can tell that it is impossible for humans to do that because we don't know heaven. So how can I live my life and make sure that I am... Pointing to heaven, like a compass, points to the north. Right? How? I don't know heaven. How can I make sure that everything I believe right now, all the stuff that I'm putting in my brain right now, that none of that is contradictory with heaven? How? Do you reckon that, humanly speaking, it's impossible? We, we can't because we don't know heaven? I mean, let me make it easier on you. You're going to go live in China. There are no books. There are very few books. Somebody had a vision of China, wrote about it. And you're making sure you're going to go there, you're not going to upset anybody. You don't speak the language. You don't know the customs. You don't even know how these people live. Do you think it's going to be easy to not offend anybody? So, and what is China to heaven? You understand why we need the church? And why we cannot truthfully believe in Jesus Christ if we do not assent and believe to everything Holy Mother Church teaches? Because in assenting and believing in everything the Catholic Church teaches us, we are pointing to heaven. We're saying to ourselves, okay, I may not know everything about heaven, but because of what Jesus did, I know one thing. There's not going to be something in heaven that I'm going to refuse. There won't be. There won't be a truth that I don't know today that's going to shock me to a point where I'm not going to believe it. Why? I'm training myself in obedience right now to things I don't fully understand. Or maybe not completely understand. But I'm training myself. So when I get there, I'll know. Whatever it is, Lord, is going to be good. But when I say, Mary, she's just a vessel. And I get there and she's seated at the right hand of the Son of God. I'm going to have a little problem, won't I? Saints? What saints? And then you see St. Joseph. You're going to have a little problem, won't you? The Eucharist? And then you see the Eucharistic liturgy up in heaven. You're piling up the problems. And I think that's the way we need to look at our Protestant brothers and sisters and thinking about how difficult they're making it for themselves to get to heaven. Because 
when you move away from the rock, you move away from the truth. And when you move away from the truth, heaven is obscured. All right? All right. Now let's deal with the two witnesses. So St. John measures the inner in order to protect it. And then we have these two witnesses. There have been a lot of ink written by these two witnesses. Well, I'll tell you right away, those two witnesses are not two particular individuals. <coughs> Some folks suggested uh, Moses and Elijah, or Enoch and Elijah, or Paul and Peter, or the two Jewish high priests killed in, in, um, in um, I think, 68 AD in a temple. There's no re- need to, to go and try to pinpoint these two people because that, that is not an indication of two people. It's, the reason why it's two witnesses is because of what we said, what we read earlier in the letter of the Hebrews. We need two witnesses for the court to be legal. Right? If, you, if we reread what they are doing, you'll notice that and I will grant, yeah, I will grant my two witnesses power to prophesy for 1,260 days, which is three and a half years, clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands which stand before the Lord of the earth. So where are they witnessing? They are witnessing standing before the Lord of the earth. You have two witnesses before the Lord of the earth. Who is the Lord of the earth? He's the judge. You get it? This is a court. They are standing before the judge and they are bearing witness to all the things that these people are doing. Do you understand? This is what we're dealing with here. We're not dealing with any two particular people. We're dealing with, effectively, notice the description, two olive trees, two lampstands. Remember the lampstands? Remember when we see the lampstands? What are the lampstands? The churches. The churches. Okay? So, the, the, the notion here is we're not dealing with any two particular people. We're actually dealing with the same group as the 144,000, the one who were sealed. The same group, the church, bearing witness to the Lord about what the, 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 people who, the, the people of the earth, the people who live, the dwellers of the earth are doing. And let's see why this is the case. If anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, thus he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood. Who shut the sky? Elijah. Who turned the water into blood? Moses. Elijah and Moses. Doesn't mean that you have Elijah and Moses here. Remember St. John the Baptist? Jesus testified that he is Elijah to come. It's not reincarnation. Right? It is John the Baptist coming in the spirit of Elijah. Meaning, bearing the same kind of witness. Right? That's what we have here. So the power of prophesying was given by the mighty angel to St. John. 
And that's why I'm telling you the link is so important, is that in the church, what is received by an apostle is given to whom? To all. Right? That's ecclesiology for you. When truth is given to the Pope, the Pope gives it to whom? All. When the truth is given to an apostle, it's given to whom? All. For the benefit of whom? All. The whole household of God. Of God. So what St. John is given extends to the whole household of God. How do we see that? We see it in the book of Joel, chapter 2, where Joel prophesied and said that in the days to come, everyone in the household of God will be given the spirit of prophecy. And that is what Peter quotes in Acts, reminding the, the, Jew, the Jews that in those days, says the Lord, your young, young, your young man and young maiden will dream dreams and prophesy. Okay? So, effectively, what we're having here is the notion that these two witnesses are a numeric representation of the community of faith, of the whole church. And they are patterned after Moses and Elijah, but the interesting thing is that the power of Moses and Elijah is given to both of them. It isn't like this one can turn the water into, bl into blood and this one can shut the sky. Both can. Collectively, they can. All right? What is the shutting the, what is the, shutting the, the sky and, and then turning water into blood? They're plagues. Right? Both of them are plagues. So we're now back to the plagues. Right? In the seals, how did the plagues come about? What caused the plagues to come about? The fifth seal, the prayers of the saints. You see the connection? In the seals, it is the prayer of the saints. How long, O Lord, before you avenge our blood? And they were told to wait a little while, and then God is going to take action. Well, guess what? God is taking action. Because of the communion of the saints in the church, and because of the presence of the Eucharist, which brings heaven to earth, what is true of the saints of heaven, in heaven is also true of the saints on earth. So practically speaking, how does this work? It works like this. How do those two witnesses bear witness against the dwellers of the earth? Is it because they go and they accuse them? And they say they're doing this and they're doing that and this and the other? They don't even have to do that. All they have to do is bear witness to the truth. Because when they bear witness to the truth... Lies is exposed. Okay? So, the dynamics of the church, it works like this. In our daily lives, in the little things we do that seem so mundane, someone cuts you off on the highway. Somebody takes your parking spot. Someone is, you're going to buy this ripe tomato and they steal it away from you. Uh, and those are mundane little things, but they can be worse. They can go all the way to people being killed, you know, uh, churches destroyed in Iraq, and the life of Christians in danger everywhere. What? It, it is the response of the Christians to those events when they bear the suffering like their Lord, and they bear witness to the truth of the gospel. That witness to the truth of the gospel is joined to the communion of the saints and the Eucharist, to the prayers of the saints in heaven, before the altar of God. And God responds. Okay? So, the world 
is a loser no matter what. Because if the world does not attack the church, the church will expand and the church will disciple the world. If the world attacks the church and the church is true, that's the key. That's the key, you see. If the Christians are living their faith the way they're supposed to, if the Catholics are praying the way they're supposed to, if they understand the Mass, if they're living a true Catholic life, if they're bearing witness to the truth, then covenantal curses are triggered against those who attack the church. And the church wins again. And that is why I, 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 see, I, I, I repeat to you often, look at what happens in the church. Worry about the church. The world will torque itself, will follow. The church will torque the world. Our tragedy is that we as Catholics in the century are, for the most part, the large, numerous Catholics out there are effectively apostatizing. They're not following the faith. Why? Because of contraception, among other things. Okay? When you're contracepting and when you're, when you're unwilling to really follow the faith and be subject to the teaching of the church, you're effectively letting the world win. Why? Because for this whole thing to work, there ought to be people who are faithful and who are bearing witness to the truth. If they are not bearing witness to the truth, they belong to whom? To the world. And so what, the, what, what will God do? He will allow His church to recede. The truth of the faith recedes. We don't have enough priests. You think it's just a matter of uh, statistics? that We don't have enough priests? To a contracepting Catholic crowd, you're going to have fewer priests. That's how it goes. And there's no point trying to fix the world so we can have more priests. There's no point of trying to figure out, well, let's allow more married men to be priests. Not going to happen. Not going to fix your problem. It's by fixing our problem here. By us focusing on Christ, on learning the truth, on, be, on being faithful, on loving the church, on offering our sacrifices, on studying, understanding scripture, and living in Catholic life, that we turn things around. In being convicted of the power that we have, in understanding how the covenant works, and going to God and said, Lord, it's your covenant. You established it. You can make it happen. That's the key. So, they're not individual prophets, as I said. They are actually the community of the faith, represented in different ways. Um, I'll point out to you that the two witnesses are called two lampstands, and they're also the two olive trees. If you go to Zechariah chapter 4, you will see that in the vision that Zechariah has, he sees two lampstands, and next to them, in the new temple, there are two olive trees. And the explanation is given to Zechariah that the two lampstands represent Israel, and the two olive trees, from which you're going to get what? Olive oil, so you can put into the lamp, so you can turn, you can turn them on, right? Okay. What is the olive trees representing then? Think about the parable of the wise and foolish virgins. The lamps, five had enough oil and five didn't. What is the oil representing? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. So the olive trees represent the Holy Spirit feeding the church. All right? That is the key. That is the key because this is why the church will always be ever young, 
and will always move on because the Holy Spirit lives in her and the Holy Spirit provides provides the oil. And that's why this, the little story about St. Charbel is so profound. I don't know how many people really understand its import. St. Charbel uh, was in uh, the... Mon in, in, uh, he, I think that, that night he'd come down from his, from his hermitage. I don't know if he was in the hermitage yet, yet or not, Father. Was he when the story of the lamp? Was he already a hermit? The lamp. Yeah, when he was not yet a hermit. So he, he, he asked the brother to fill his lamp with oil. And the brother, being a prankster, decided to fill it with water. And he brought it back to St. Charbel, filled with water. St. Charbel did not know. And so he lit up the lamp. And the lamp burned as if it was filled with oil. And I don't know how many people really understand the import, the biblical import of that little miracle. What it meant about him. Filled with the Holy Spirit, yeah, see? Yeah, that's why St. Charbel is so Marian, right? Because she's so filled with the Holy Spirit. But, but this, many of the miracles and the signs that God gives us, see, this is the, the annoying thing with us Catholics. Right? We are rich beyond belief, but we're starving because we don't know where the fridge is. We've forgotten what the fridge looks like. Or if you open the fridge, we've got no clue what's in it. You see, we think about all these, little, these signs that God gives us to the saints. They're saints here, they're saints on earth, they're saints in heaven. As little stories, cute little stories. But if we really understood them biblically, we'd have goosebumps. He's talking to us to them. Okay? The truth will set you free. The truth. So, that's why they are called the lampstand and, and uh, the, the, the olive trees, the two olive trees and the lampstand. And for three and a half years... Uh, which is also the same duration as you find in the book of Daniel, you see them prophesying and testifying to the truth. And so anyone who's trying to actually um, hurt them is hurt back. It's almost like the law of the Italian, right? Eye for an eye. So whatever you do wrong, the same thing will be done to you. That's why we read in a text that whosoever tries to hurt them ends up being hurt himself. Okay? God is protecting his church. For three and a half years, they are prophesying, and then the beast ascends from the bottomless pit. What is the beast? Rome. Right? It's the political power. Don't just think in terms of Satan. Yeah, behind it, there is Satan. But think about the political power. So it's going to be the two beasts, right? The beast, the dragon that comes down, we're going to see that. And then there's the beast that comes out of the sea. That's Rome. And then the beast that looks like a lamb, but is not a lamb. That was the, the priesthood of the temple that joined forces together and attacked the church, right? The beast that is sent from the, from the sea, will, from the bottomless pit, will make war against them and will conquer them. And they will die. How do they die? Physically. So what, what is it saying? It's saying that the power, the combined power of Rome and of the temple attack this little church... And it seems to the naked eye that the church is done and over with. For how long? Three and a half days. They prophesied for three and a half years, and they looked dead for three and a half days. Years? Days. Suggesting what? 
that the seeming victory of the world is always short-lived. Always short-lived. So even today you have the same thing. The world is very good at telling us about how such and such a church is growing so rapidly, or such and such a religion is growing so quickly, or how Catholics are disaffected, or how this is happening, and that and the other, and this power is rising. And it sounds, as usual, that the church is on the, it's teetering and is just going to implode. It's always been like that. This is what it's telling us. It always looks like that. The truth of the matter is that it's never what it looks like, what it seems to be, because of the Holy Spirit present in the church. And that is born by history. That is born by history. Remember Stalin, when they've told him that the Pope objects to what he was doing? What was his answer? No, 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 not exactly what's the Pope. How many tanks the Pope has? How many tanks the Pope has? Meaning, why should I even worry about what he's talking about? He's got no army. I can take him like this. Where's Stalin today? I mean, we forget how powerful this man was. We, we forget. He was very powerful. Where is he today? Forgotten, right? So, that's what you need to see. Why am I insisting on that? Because I know how the world imposes, it seems, its power on us, and then we lose ground. And when you cannot pray with faith, your prayer is weak. That's why the truth is so important. It is the basis of your strength. When you know what you're dealing with, you can pray mightily, and you can move mountains. You understand? And that's why my heart goes to all the Catholics, because I know under what plight they live in, because they live in ignorance. They're living in a dark room. I mean, they got a whole nuclear reactor ready to you know, provide light for them forever and ever. They don't know what the switch is. There is one reason also why uh, the, the, um, the two witnesses are, um, we have two, is that... Uh, um, the um, remember from the churches we had two churches, two churches we saw that had no rebuke. So it might be an indication also to the two churches which were really holy in the seven, and that's why you have these two witnesses. Meaning that it's only those in the Catholic Church who really try trying to live a truly Catholic life that end up being able to to witness. Now the forty-two months that we talked about, that we read um, is associated with uh, the, the prophecy of Daniel. It is also associated with Elijah's ministry of judgment, forty-two months. It's associated with Babylonian captivity by the Jews, forty-two months. It's associated with the wandering in a desert, which included forty-two encampments. It is a reflection on the siege of Jerusalem by the Roman army, three and a half years. Right. So there's a lot of illusion behind that forty-two months. Now the holy city. What I'm saying to you right now is that it is Jerusalem. Right? The holy city and the great city, Jerusalem. Why? Where the Lord has been crucified. Where the Lord was crucified. He was crucified in Jerusalem. I point out to you that more often than not, the, the scripture will call Jerusalem Sodom. 
Deuteronomy 29.22, Deuteronomy 32.32, Isaiah 1, verse 7, verse 9, verse 10, chapter 3, verse 9, Isaiah 13, verse 9, no, verse 19 speaks of Babylon as Sodom, but I'm going to show you later on that Babylon the Great is actually Jerusalem. So you're still talking about Jerusalem. Jeremiah chapter 23 verse 14 applies Sodom and Gomorrah to Jerusalem. Jeremiah chapter 50 verse 40 applies it to Babylon. And we go back to Jerusalem. And Ezekiel chapter 16 verse 48 says, As I live, says the Lord God, I swear that your sister Sodom with her daughters has not done as you and your daughters have done. That's a covenantal oath. So he's saying about, about Jerusalem, that Jerusalem did worse than what Sodom did. And then now Egypt, because the city is called Sodom and Egypt. Very interesting. Why? We have Elijah and Moses, right? We've alluded to Elijah and Moses. Now, you go back to Luke chapter 9, verse 30 and 31, in the transfiguration of our Lord, you know that Elijah and Moses appeared to him. Luke adds, explains to us what they were talking about. And he says, And behold, two men were conversing with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his exodus that he was to accomplish in Jerusalem. Okay? The exodus of Jesus from earthly Jerusalem to heavenly Jerusalem. He's opening up, he's parting the sea. For us to be able to go to heaven. Okay? Hence, Egypt. Because where did the Israelite, what, what, what did they leave behind them to go to the promised land? Egypt. So you have to leave the earthly Jerusalem to reach the new Jerusalem. You have to leave the old covenant to reach the new covenant. Right? Hence, the great city is called Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, in the resurrection... Uh, I'll refer you to Matthew 27, verse 51, 53. Very interesting. And behold, the veil of the sanctuary was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth quaked, rocks were split, tombs were opened, and the bodies of many saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming forth from their tombs, after his resurrection, they entered the holy city and appeared to many. So there was a first resurrection that took place after the death and resurrection of our Lord where many old saints rose from the tomb and entered the city, and many saw them. So, whether it's a bodily resurrection of all these people who got killed, or the indication that the church as a whole, after it looked destroyed by the Romans, rise anew and surprises all, both meaning would apply. Both meaning would apply. And there is an earthquake indicative of the judgment against the unbelievers. So right after that, an earthquake occurs, and it is said that 7,000 fell. Now, the 7,000 7, may signify that a, an eye for an eye is being applied here. Why? It's a little bit complicated, but follow me. I told you the two witnesses may not represent two people, but the, 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 the whole community of faith. The two witnesses have something to do also with Elijah, Right? Because one, the attributes of Elijah is given to him. Well, under Elijah, God kept for himself a remnant. The remnant of the faithful. How many were there? 
7,000. So the world here is attacking who? The 7,000. An eye for an eye, 7,000 on the other side, die. Get it? I know, it's a little bit... It's analysis of the second degree. I'm just bringing it out to your attention. Uh, I think it's interesting. Fine. It also may refer to Jerusalem since, since it may have had 70,000 people living in it, a tenth of the city. One interesting fact, and I'm going to mention quickly now, but I'm going to spend a whole lecture talking to you about Josephus and the war of the Jews and show you, showing you how many of these elements that we read here apply to the war against Jerusalem by the Romans. But one thing he quotes is this. But the shame that would attend them in case they returned without doing anything at all so far overcame, uh, overcame that their repentance, their repentance that they lay all night before the wall, though in very bad encampment, for they broke out a pro- for there broke out a prodig- pro- prodigious, prodigious, prodigious storm in the night with the utmost violence and very strong winds, with the largest showers of rain, with continued lightnings, terrible thunderings, and amazing concussions and bellowings of the earth that was in an earthquake. What he's writing about is the events that took place while the Romans besieged Jerusalem. There was actually an earthquake. Right? So it could very, very, very well be that that particular earthquake he's mentioning refers to an actual historical earthquake that happened. But effectively, an earthquake is always a sign of judgment. So at the end of this sixth trumpet, we have all the elements that remove away the obstacles. The, 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 the first attack against the world, so to speak, has taken place. Now what we're going to see in the seventh trumpet is, number one, the unveiling of the bride and the response of the world. The world now is going to, be, is going to ratchet up the attack. And as a result, God responds with, the seven bowls of wrath. Okay. Um, um, we have we have three minutes for question. Questions. Yes. Good question. The question is, uh, since we live in a uh, in a part of the country where uh, animals are uh, treated with uh, um, great dignity. And when an animal dies, people can be, when an animal dies, people can be very sad. Should we be able to tell them, well, God may have prepared a place for this animal because of what Isaiah spoke about the lion and the lamb? Um, no, because of the following reason. I think, first of all, your, your intention is a very good one. I completely understand where you're taking it, and that's wonderful. But I think you need to correct it a little bit. Let me explain. The business of the lion and the lamb is like the book of Revelation. Those are symbols. Isaiah was not talking about a zoo where you have a lion lying with a lamb. Because if the lion were to lie with a lamb, it ain't a lion anymore. It may be a stuffed lion, but it's not a lion. <laughs> You've changed the nature of the thing, and God is not going to do that. All right? It's about something completely different. Right? The point, though, is this. We, real charity that worries about the other is always rooted in truth. So there are people who cannot take the truth right away, in which case we may be better off saying nothing instead of confirming them into a lie and praying for them. Lord, I'd like to be able to reach this person, but right now I cannot. You might say, I understand your pain. I'm really sorry. Uh, I feel your pain. Uh, I'm with you. 
you'll be able to get over it or something. Encourage them. But don't promise them something that is not true. God created the animals with a moral soul. When the animal dies, physically, the soul dies. End of story. We have to live by that truth. So find another way to express the charity. Correct. Uh, and the problem is that it's not about going to heaven. Because if, they, if their intent was to go to heaven, they would not be in the situation they're in. They have an emotional need. They have a loss. Uh, essentially, when they invested so much emotion into an animal, they're basically like reaping what... Uh, I know, they're reaping back what they've put in. You're not supposed to do that because an animal, at the end of the day, will die and nothing will remain. So you're not, you ought not to be so attached to an animal as if treating him as if he's a human being. Because human beings are immortal, animals are not. So animals will, at the end of the day, disappoint your expectation. Don't get me wrong, animals are wonderful. They're created by God. They teach us so many good lessons. They're good companions. I have two cats, a rabbit and a mo. Uh, a, um, what is that thing again? A hamster. A hamster. All right? You learn great lessons by, by uh, my daughter called him Mo, because he looked like he has a mohawk cut or something. I figure. But, great, but at the end of the day, they're not humans. Yes? No. The, 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 uh, okay, one thing at a time. Blessing animals, absolutely. Okay. It's a wonderful thing to bless them. It doesn't mean that you baptize them. No. Okay, well, clear, let me be clear on that. Blessing them as in for protection, yes. Uh, asking God to protect an animal or when an animal is lost, like uh, we lost a rabbit. And uh, it was a wonderful thing, actually. I was really glad that, that we lost the rabbit because my daughter, Hanan, uh, strengthened her faith because she prayed to God about the rabbit. And she, three days later, amazingly, she found a rabbit. So that was wonderful. So yeah, all those things, not a problem. But again, we have to keep track of reality. Right? Any other questions? All right, God bless you. We hope you've enjoyed this talk from Carbono. For more information about this and other talks, please visit our website at www.carbono.com. Thank you, and God bless you.